0: The, uh, the title of my message this evening is A Matter of Life and Death. A Matter of Life and Death. I don't know if any of you saw that on the, on the Facebook post and were like, hmm, that sounds interesting. Um, I know Eric did the same thing when I told him what it was earlier. He's like, I could just, you know, we're doing this over text, and you know, sometimes you can just hear kind of the wheels turning when somebody responds to you. You know, it's just kind of like, I wonder where he's going with that, you know, because it's, it's an odd title, I get that. Um, it, it, might seem, it might seem a little dramatic. Um, I know it's, it, it's a phrase that, I, I don't know we necessarily hear it that often. I know we can think of things that are matters of life and death, but I, I feel like for me, most often when I hear the term matter of life and death, it's usually in the negative, right? It's usually because someone has asked me to do something, and um, and you can tell that it's important to them, but they're trying to kind of play it off a little bit, right? And they're like, "Well, it, it's don't worry, it, it's not a matter of life and death, right? It's not a matter of life. It, it's okay. It's not it's not that big of a deal, right?" So well, usually, when I hear it, that's kind of the context that I hear this term in, because we understand the gravity of that statement, do we not? When we hear the, the the words matter of life and death, that's a pretty heavy phrase. That's a pretty heavy phrase, and and usually there, there's not a whole lot of things that we talk about in in scripture that are matters of life and death. And we're going to look at that really kind of in a couple of different ways uh, tonight as we as we go through it. Um, but there are real matters of life and death, are there not? Um, many matters of life and death are, are things that we can't control or, or maybe we don't, um, we don't think that we can control them. We, we, we might have had a, some hand in it, but, but generally we think of them as things that we can't necessarily control, such as a, a, a health problem, right? Maybe like a heart attack or a stroke or something like that. Uh, that's a, a matter of life and death. Um, there, there may be something like a car accident, those can often be matters of life and death. Um, hopefully most of the time they're not, um, but they're, they're very scary uh, instances, things that can can change whether or not we live or die in an instance, uh, instant. Of course, most of us really don't deal a whole lot very often with matters of life and death, do we? Uh, most of us are not in an emergency room where uh, somebody who works in an emergency room would deal with, with matters of life and death on a much more regular basis. This would, be, this would be something that they really have a good grip of. And I wonder sometimes if, you know, as I say this phrase, matter of life and death, do we really have a clear picture of that? Is it just kind of this nebulous thing? Or do we have kind of a, an understanding of the gravity of that phrase? You know, at some time, some point in our life, most of us probably will face... Um, some sort of decision that is a matter of life and death, either for ourselves or for somebody else. Um, My wife actually was just telling me uh, yesterday, I think, that uh, we were in the car and she was telling me that if anything ever happens to her, she wants her best friend to be the one that decides when to pull the plug. Because apparently I'm going to be too emotional to make that decision the way that she would want it to be made, so um, maybe that's true. I told her I probably wouldn't still be around at that point, but uh, <laughs> I'll probably die before she does. But uh, but you know that's that's a hard decision, right? That's a real life decision that people have to make. In fact, it seems like more and more to me, people have to make a decision like that. About when to let a loved one go. Sometimes uh, people have to make that decision for themselves when they are facing a a life-ending, you know, uh, disease like cancer or something like that. Sometimes people choose, "I'm not going to continue treatment," you know, or "I am going to continue treatment." That's you know, that's a life and death choice, a life and death decision. So I would not be surprised if most of us at some point would encounter some form of life and death situation where we would have to make a choice. But what if I told you that the way that you approach our gathering every fourth week, the way that you come to this time of communion, of the Lord's Supper, could be considered a matter of life and death. Not just about whether or not you, you drive here, <laughs> you know, in, in winter conditions or something like that. I, I put that aside, but I'm talking about the way that you come spiritually to the Lord's Supper could be a matter of life and death. It is a matter of life and death in one instance, as we'll look at, but it could be in another this evening, as we step through this passage in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I hope that you'll be reminded of truths that you already know and perhaps be enlightened about others that you may have forgotten or have not seen before. But the big idea this evening is this. The way that we approach the ordinance of the Lord's Supper individually and as a local body is a matter of life and death, both in our understanding of what we're doing and in the way in which we do it. Let me say that one more time. It's up there so you can take notes. The way we approach the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, individually and as a local body, is a matter of life and death, both in our understanding of what we're doing and in the way in which we do it. As we come to this passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, um, the first part of the chapter is uh, a little bit of instruction, but also Paul is, is uh, commending the church uh, in Corinth for following his teaching, right? Um, but we get down to here to verse 17, and, and we see he starts off with this statement, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Why? There's something wrong, right? There's something going on here when it comes to the way that the Corinthian church was practicing the Lord's Supper. There's something wrong here with the way that the the church of Corinth was approaching their understanding and and their practice of the Lord's Supper. And so Paul is going to give them some instruction here that is hopefully going to help them understand what they're doing wrong, understand why it's important, and then understand the gravity of it as far as how they go about it. So we're going to look at um, three things this evening. The first part uh, I've titled, of course, they're all S's, S's and P's. Alright, so if you're taking notes, it's easy to remember. So the first point that we're going to make tonight is, or the thing we're, we're going to look at, is the selfish practices at the Lord's Supper. The selfish practices at the Lord's Supper. What's going on here? What's going on here in the Church of Corinth? We see that there are um, divisions, right? That's the first thing that Paul's Paul mentions. There are divisions here in the Church. Now, uh, divisions are not anything uh, abnormal necessarily to the church, especially the early church. Uh, there was a lot of false teaching going on. There were a lot of uh, people following after different, different teachers and to the exclusion of other teachers, even though they were preaching the same gospel. Uh, Paul addresses that in other passages. There's, there's division going on here, but Paul is specifically talking about division when it comes to the Lord's Supper. And how it is being managed, how it is being run, How it is it being approached by the people of the church at Corinth. And there is division. And it's interesting, though, that Paul says, even, even though there is division here, and that division is not good, obviously, even Jesus Christ prayed in his prayer for the disciples and for us, he prayed that we would be one, right? That we would be unified. There's a desire for unity. But, but even when there isn't unity, even in this uh, division, Paul says, really, it's it's actually, it's a good thing, right? Why is it a good thing? Anybody? <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> Division's not good. that those who are become evident. Right. So that those who are approved or who are genuine, who are real, would become evident, right? So even in this division, God can use the division of this Church of Corinth to show those who are genuine followers of Christ. By the way, they respond to the Lord's Supper. Think about that. The way you approach the Lord's Supper can be a sign of the genuineness of your salvation. So Paul says, there's division that is rising up in the way that you are handling this uh, this institution of the Lord's Supper, this ordinance of the Lord's Supper. There's, there's division. But in that division, we can tell who's right and who's wrong. We can tell who's genuine, right? So the Lord's Supper is this contentious point. Why? Why is it a contentious point for Paul? What's going on here? What is it What is it that's causing this division among the people? Well, he, he gives several examples here as he talks about this. What does he say? He says, oh, wrong passage. Here we go. In verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there, I'm oh, sorry, skip down. Um, verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. That you eat, okay? We know this is the passage about the Lord's Supper, so theoretically, it would be the Lord's Supper that they're gathering for, or that they think they're gathering for, right? What are we seeing here? We're seeing uh, what I call a desanctification of the Lord's Supper, a desanctification of the Lord's Supper. They they've taken the Lord's Supper from what it was intended to be and turned it into just an ordinary, normal no big deal, part of their gathering. It seems like, to me, we don't really know, you know, how often they they came together for the Lord's Supper. There's no mandate in Scripture that gives us a specific number of times we should do the Lord's Supper, how often we should do it. Um, it just says, as often as you do it, you know, do it in remembrance of me. We'll talk about that here in a minute. But there, there's nothing in Scripture that gives us a direct command about when to do it, but... My personal guess is I think they were probably observing the Lord's Supper pretty regularly. Maybe even every time they got together. I mean, any good Christian enjoys food together with other Christians, right? I mean, that's that's the way we that's the way we relate to each other, right? We don't usually invite people over to our house to just talk. Not that that's wrong, but usually there's food involved, all right? All right, so more than likely, my my guess is they probably did this about every time they came together as a church. And uh, as that had progressed through time, we began to see here kind of a desanctification of it. It became less of what it was supposed to be and more of just a tradition, more of just something that they did to the point that they were abusing the Lord's Supper. They were abusing it. They were making it what it was not intended to be. They were making it this this whole meal. And in doing so, they were abusing it. They were were eating uh, as much as they wanted. They were were drinking as much as they wanted. They were getting drunk, right? That's one of the things that he calls out. Some of you are are eating your fill. You're eating too much. And some of you are, are getting drunk at what is supposed to be a time a remembrance of Jesus Christ. So they're desanctifying the Lord's Supper. They're taking it out of its place of importance. Now, of course, we always want to be very careful not to put earthly, uh, even mandates of Christ higher than they should be in place of importance. Um, participating in the Lord's Supper does not make you a super-Christian it does not give you any more grace. It does not do anything um, spectacular for you that it, that somebody that doesn't have it doesn't. It is, it is a rallying point. It is a unification point. Christ left it for us not to be something that created division, but to be something that brought us together, something that caused us to come together in a moment of worship, in a moment of of thankfulness and gratitude for what Christ has done for us. And yet they were turning it into an opportunity for gluttony and drunkenness in the church. They had desanctified the Lord's Supper. Not only did they desanctify it in the way that they partook of it, but but their selfishness, we said this was selfish practices, their selfishness was, was in full swing, Right? We just talked about it. They were they were eating as much as they wanted to eat. Uh, they were not worrying about others, whether or not they got any. I mean, this is this is like you know. Some sometimes we have some uh, meals together with family members, and and usually when we have meals with with family, um, we have a rule, and that rule is the kids have to go after the adults. Right? Why is that? Kids are not real good at portion control, okay? They're not real good at, like, head counts and figuring out how much they should leave for other people, right? They're just, they're kids. You know, we're not, we're not angry at you. It's just reality, right? It's reality. They just don't, they don't think like we do, you know? As adults, we're concerned in making sure everybody gets enough, especially the hostess is usually concerned about that more than the host. Um, But, you know, we want to make sure everybody gets enough. But that's not what we see here among those who are claiming the name of Christ, right? They're almost like the kids, just going through and piling on everything that they can and not worrying about the others that have nothing. Selfishness, that's even shown in the drunkenness. And in all of that, we see the humiliation of others. We see the humiliation of others. How is that? There's some statements here about the poor and the rich. We're we're going to be seeing more of that in the book of James. But think about the church of Corinth. So at that time, there were a lot of people being saved from all walks of life. From rich people to poor people to slaves. And there are passages, we've read them in, in Philippians and Colossians and in Ephesians, talking about how there should be unity, right? In Christ, there is no rich or poor, there is no male or female, there is no Gentile or Jew. We are all one in Christ. Right? In the book of Acts, we see the early church coming together and pulling their resources together to make sure that those who were in trial and tribulation and, and in need were able to be taken care of. That is the heart of a genuine believer. And yet, in the time that is set aside for unity and remembering Christ, we had some who were selfishly taking more than they needed, and in so doing, humiliating those who had not. Just selfish practices. Now, you know, we kind of look at the way we do the Lord's Supper today, right? We don't we don't usually have a potluck on fourth Sunday where everybody brings their food, you know, and those that maybe don't bring as much, you know, it's not Nobody says anything. Nobody usually even knows. I don't know who brings what, usually. <laughs> so um, you know, even on the potlucks, we don't really tend to have that big of a problem, I don't think. So it, it may be easy for us to kind of look at this Corinthian church and think, what a bunch of losers. <laughs> you know, you guys, you guys are just horrible people, right? You guys are terrible. You just, you know, doing everything for yourself, taking all the food, not worrying about what everybody else was getting. That's, that's just horrible people. But do we do that? Are we guilty of the same thing? Maybe not when it comes to food. Maybe not when it comes to the Lord's Supper. As of course, we don't do a meal. We just have the, the two items of, of that Christ specifically used, the bread and the wine. So we, we, we may not have that conflict in that specific thing, but in our hearts and in our attitude, do we look down on others For what they do or don't bring to the table? Do we look down or look up to others in the church for what they do or don't bring to the table? That's not the way that God desires us to be. Do we judge others when they come to the Lord's Supper? Do we watch the plates be passed around and lift up our nose at somebody and we think, I know they've got a, they've got a problem. I don't I doubt that they've taken care of that problem. Do we judge others? How are we coming to the Lord's table? Is it out of selfishness? Is it out of pride? Even pride in saying, I, I, I got to make sure that I take some in case anybody wonders what's going on in me with my life. Are we sowing seeds in our own heart of disunity, of selfishness, of pride, even when we come to the table? Paul calls out the selfish practices of the Corinthians at the Lord's Su- Supper. But after calling them out and saying, these are the things that you're doing wrong, what does he say? He says, um, down at the end of that, he says, shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. It's not acceptable. It's not okay. It's not all right for you to come to this time that we should be having unity and joy and worship together in a heart of selfishness and pride humiliating others, thinking down on others, thinking worse of others. This is not the attitude that you should be coming to the Lord's table with. And the reason is because we have to understand, the second point, the sacred purpose of the Lord's Supper. The sacred purpose of the Lord's Supper See, the selfish practices of the Lord's Supper were happening because they didn't didn't remember, they knew, they knew the truth, but they didn't remember the sacred purpose of the Lord's Supper, right? They desanctified it. They turned it into another meal. He said, you have houses to eat in. If you're hungry, eat there. Don't come here and, and create disunity and disruption during the Lord's Supper. Take care of your needs there, and come and join in worship. Of the reason why we have the Lord's Supper, the sacred purpose of the Lord's Supper. See, it's not just a tradition. We don't just have the Lord's Supper every fourth Saturday, fourth weekend. <laughs> we don't just do that on tradition. We do that because it's a commandment. It's not just a tradition. It's not just, you know, something that, we, that we've created and we, and we just, you know, do it every week and there's no thought given to it. It's a command. In fact, even in this passage, Paul makes very clear the fact that this is something that came down not from his lips, but from Christ's lips. What does he say in verse 23? He says, for I received from whom? <clears throat> from the Lord, right? I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So he says, I, I've already told you all of this information. You know what the Lord's Supper is. Obviously, you're attempting to, in some degree, partake in it, right? So you understand what the Lord's Supper is, but you've forgotten the sacred purpose of it. And, and the first part of that is understanding that this is something instituted by God. There are two things that we, that we look at as specifically instituted, that we look at maybe as traditions in the church, instituted by Christ. What are they? Baptism and community. Baptism and communion. Baptism and communion. So communion is one of those things that the church is supposed to partake in on some sort of regular basis that Christ has specifically commanded, and it's clear that that Christ, in some way, specifically commanded Paul as well. We know obviously that Paul was not a disciple; he was not with Christ for the time that Christ was bodily here on the earth. We do know that he received instruction from the lord as an apostle and my guess would be during that time Christ also gave him this instruction as he as he has a record of the of the last supper that matches the gospels of what Christ said during that time so Paul reminds them that it, this, is a, this is spiritual instruction. It's not, just, uh, it's not just him talking about something that they're familiar with. It's, it's instruction. It's a, it's a spiritual instruction. It's a command that Christ himself gave. And that command was specifically for us to remember the sacrifice. For us to remember the life of, and death of Christ. That's the first life and death situation. It's Christ, life and death. He reminds them once again. This is not just Paul saying. This is how you. This is this. This is the steps of communion. You know, we tend to follow that pattern, right? Don't worry, we're not going to mix it up. <laughs> tonight, we tend to follow this pattern, right? We, we pass around the bread and we we talk about the bread and we pray about the bread and then we pass around the cup and we talk about the cup and pray about the cup and partake in all that stuff, right? That, that's not just what this passage is for. It's not just to give us this line-by-line item process for us to follow as we partake in the Lord's Supper. Is it helpful? Absolutely. Is it beneficial for that? Sure. But more importantly, it's given to us to remind us, especially the church here in Corinth, to remind them of the sacred nature, the sacred purpose of what they were gathering to do. They were gathering to remember the life and death of Jesus Christ. To remember him as the perfect lamb the one without spot or blemish, without bruising or brokenness, the one without sin, to remember his perfect sacrifice on the cross, his beatings before it, his blood that was shed, his cry of anguish as the father turned his back because of the sin of the world being placed on his perfect son. Your sin and my sin placed on him. And then willingly giving up his life. Then three days later, Peter and John running to his tomb, and getting there to find a, the stone that none of them could push aside, rolled away. Bedclothes folded right there where his body had lain in two places, and their master gone. Risen. Victorious. That is the sacred purpose of Lord's Supper. Has the Lord's Supper simply become a tradition for you? One of the things that we've talked about is elders... More than once is: Are we partaking enough? Are we partaking too much? Do we have a good balance? Why, why, why do we Why do we ask that question? Why do we ask that question? Oh. Any idea? Because our fear is that the more often we do it, the more like this we become. But our our other fear is that the the less often we do it, the more we forget. Is every fourth weekend perfect? I don't know. It seems to be working okay. (laughs) But even every fourth weekend when we gather together and we partake, I know we don't often have a full uh, service Dedicated to this time. Most of the time, we're, we're still going through a series, and 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 if we're not careful, sometimes it can feel like it's just kind of an added thing to that week. And have you ever have you ever walked in and seen it up here and thought, "Oh man, we're gonna be here a little later." You don't have to shake your hand. We're humans. How do we approach the blessing? Do we regularly, continually understand and appreciate the sacred purpose of why we eat this bread and drink this juice? Do we? Or has it just become a tradition? Has it just become a process? Has it just become a thing that we do? It's a sacred purpose. Not only is it, is it a time of remembrance, but if you, if you look at this passage here, Paul's writing this and he says, he kind of goes through the process. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Um, but if you remember when he talks about the cup and Christ said this himself, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood. Not only is it a time of remembrance of Christ's life and death and resurrection, but it's also a reminder or should be a reminder of the new covenant that we have because of what Christ did for us. We have a new covenant. We are no longer under the the chains and the weight of the law. We are under grace. We are under a new covenant, one that is not dependent on us Upholding our end of the bargain. But one that is solely dependent on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. There's a sacred purpose. It's to remember what Jesus Christ did and to remind us of the covenant that we have with him. A new covenant. A greater covenant. If you read the book of Hebrews, I would encourage you to do that. We're actually going to read a good chunk of stuff during the communion from Hebrews. Um, I love the book of Hebrews. It is just a, it is such a great reminder of Christ's preeminence and, and just all the things that his sacrifice has done for us. And one of the things in there that it talks about is the new covenant. But not only is it a reminder of his life and death and his sacrifice, it's a reminder of of the covenant that he has given us, but it also serves as a testimony of what Christ has done for us personally. It serves as a testimony of what Christ has done for us personally. Verse 426, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you do what? You proclaim. Not just remember, you proclaim the Lord's death. Till he comes. See, the Lord's Supper is a time of remembrance. It's a time of remembering and being thankful for and being grateful for all that Christ has done for us, for being reminded of the new covenant that we have through his shed blood. But it's also a testimony to ourselves and others of the relationship that we have with him. Of the fact that we understand who he is what he has done, and that he is coming back. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now, we don't generally have a process where everybody kind of looks around and sees who's eating and who's not. You know, and I'm not suggesting that we change that. <laughs> um, that might be a little bit uncomfortable. And I don't know how they did it in the early church. I don't know if uh, if the way the Catholics do it is a little bit more like that. I don't know. My guess is they probably did a lot like Christ did. They probably passed the bread and passed the cut. That would be my guess. And it's a testimony of what Christ has done the testimony of our commitment to him. And we are to do that continually over and over and over until Christ comes. So we've seen the selfish practices at the Lord's Supper by the Corinthian church. We've looked at the sacred purpose of the Lord's Supper. But finally this evening, I want to look at the sober preparation for the Lord's Supper the sober preparation for the Lord's Supper. The rest of this passage um, gets a little dark. Does it not? We've had some some calling out early on. Hey, you guys are doing this wrong. And then we've had some good instructions, some good reminders of, of what Jesus Christ has done for us. But now it gets a little... (laughs) harder. <laughs> does it not? What does he say? Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Just just think about that statement real fast. Whoever eats and drinks in an unworthy manner manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. When we come to this time, this sacred, set apart, special time in an unworthy manner, it's as if we're like the ones who crucified him. Have you ever thought about that? When we come to the Lord's Supper flippantly, as if it's just another thing that we do without clear understanding of what we're doing and how we're doing it, and we partake in an unworthy manner, it's as if we were the ones that crucified. We are guilty of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. That's a harsh statement. We don't, we don't like to think about it like inside You know, It's so much easier, is it, not to just put the crucifixion off on the Jews. Those horrible Jews, man, they just didn't get it. They didn't understand who Jesus Christ was. And they, they crucified him. You hear Paul saying, if you come to this ordinance that Jesus Christ has given us in an unworthy manner, it's just like you crucified him. So what does that look like? He says, let a person examine himself then. All right? We need, to know, we need to know what's going on here. We need to make sure that we're not coming to this in an unworthy manner, right? We need to make sure that we're, we're following uh, whatever is necessary to make sure that we do, we come to this in a way that we are not thought of in that manner. So, what is that? What, what does that look like? It says, let every person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I think this is an interesting um, thought on this. I read this as I was studying, and, and I think it makes it makes a lot of sense. There's not anything in here that is trying to get you to not take the Lord's Supper. Did you notice that? There's nothing in here that says, don't take the Lord's Supper. Paul's not trying to give us reasons not to participate. What's he doing? He's trying to make sure that we do it in the right manner. He's trying to make sure that we come to it in a way that pleases the Lord. What did he say? He said, examine yourself. Why? So that you can then participate so that you can then partake of the the body and the blood of Christ, the, the, the bread and the wine or the juice. Examine yourselves. Examine yourself. Now he says, that is why, let's see, sorry, verse 20, 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment On himself, all right? So we're supposed to examine ourselves, and what's the examination? The examination is, are you eating and drinking without what? Without discerning the body. What does that mean? That's a really good question. If you don't know what that means, how do you know if you've done it? I don't know about you, but growing up in a Christian church, I mean, there's there's a process, right? To our tradition, there's a process. How does it work? We say, "All right, it's communion time." All right. Thirty seconds before we start pressing out, passing out the bread and the juice. Everybody, bow your heads and get everything cleaned out and right with God, so that you come worthy. Is the sentiment wrong? No. Is the process? Maybe. What does it mean to discern the body? Some translations add some words here specifying the body of Jesus Christ. Um, The earliest manuscripts that we have don't have that phrase in them. That's why ESV translates it discerning the body. That makes it difficult, right? What what is this body that we're supposed to be discerning? Unfortunately, the passage really doesn't give us 100% clarity on this. Um, This is really the only place that we have this instruction. So how do we make sure that we're examining ourselves properly if we don't know what it is? Well, I want to give you three options tonight, very quickly, we're almost done. Three options tonight of what this body might be. The first option is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason I don't, I'm not as strong on that one, is because everybody, everywhere else in this passage, it talks about the body and blood of Christ. Right? It's always body and blood, body and blood. Um, so it seems a little bit odd to me that body would be Jesus Christ alone. But I think it's a valid understanding. So the body of Jesus Christ. So coming to the Lord's Supper, are you discerning? Are you taking, taking stock? Are you looking at yourself? Are you examining yourself whether or not you understand the gravity of what it is you are participating in? The gravity of what Christ has done for you through his broken body and his shed blood on the cross. Are you coming here with a proper understanding of the sacred purpose of communion? I think that's a valid application of that examination. If you're coming to the Lord's Supper with an understanding of what it is you are about to partake in, the gravity of it, the weight of it, do you get it? Or is it just a tradition? Is it just something that you do? Examine yourself in that way. Another way would be, another option for this body is your own body. I think this is where we tend to focus on uh, a lot of times when we when we come to Lord's Supper and we take time, especially if you read this part of the passage that says, "Examine yourself." Right? What, what's that? What's that process look like? We're looking, excuse me, to see if there's any unconfessed sin. Right? If there's anything between us and the Lord, if there's anything that we know about that would be creating a barrier between us being able to worship God properly through communion. I think that's a valid uh, use of this this body (laughs) without discerning the body. Do you come to the Lord's Supper, not just 30 seconds before? Is that wrong? Is it wrong to confess sin right before? No, it's never wrong to confess sin. But you know we do this every fourth week. Do you come prepared to partake? Do you come as much as you know and can with a right relationship with God as you come to the Lord's Supper? So it could be the body of Christ, could be our own bodies, our sinful habits, our self-indulgence. That certainly would be would be part of what's going on in the Corinthian church, is it not? How are they approaching it? Selfishly for their own desires. Is that how we come to the Lord's Supper with our selfishness and pride? Are we are we the the uh, the Pharisee? God, thank you. I'm not like that guy down there in the pew. Thank you that I am special enough to receive this ordinance of the Lord's Supper, we would never say that out loud. But do we view ourselves like that, maybe? Do we come prepared in our bodies? And thirdly, um, another option for this body would be the other body of Christ, which is the church. And I feel like the first two are, are valid uses, and good things to consider as we come to this. I think, they're, I think they're included in the process, to be perfectly honest with you. Maybe that's why it's a little vague as to what it means. But I think when you take into consideration the entire context of what Paul is addressing here, to me, the greater emphasis is on the church. And how we are interacting with the church. Why would I say that? Well, the passage begins with a problem with the way people are treating one another in the church. Right? They're creating divisions and having problems. They're treating people in in a way that is harmful and hurtful and and disrespectful, and they're creating a contention and there's a lack of unity all revolving around the Lord's Supper. When you come to the Lord's Supper, do you examine yourself to see if there's anything that is missing or wrong in your relationship with the rest of your local body. You know, a lot of times on communion, we're not going to do it tonight, but on communion or on fifth Sundays, we'll take time and we'll, we'll read through the church covenant, right? The church covenant is not something that we just came up with, it's mostly scripture. It's things that scripture calls us to do and to be as the body of Christ, whether you're an actual member or not, whether you sign on a dotted line or not, if you are participating in the body here, really Christ desires for you to participate in those ways. Have you ever come to the Lord's Supper and thought through those lists of things? Say, am I living this way? towards my brothers and sisters in Christ. There may not be some explicit sin that I have in my life that, that I can think of, that I know uh, that I've committed in the last, you know, 10 minutes <laughs> or, or two, three hours or whatever, you know. There, there may not be something obvious like that, but maybe there's some division between you and someone else in the church. Maybe there's... Um, some pride in the way that you are looking at somebody else in the church. Maybe there's some unwillingness to interact with somebody else in the church. Is that coming to the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner? Or is that how the Corinthians were coming to the Lord's Supper? I think all three of those are very valid as we examine ourselves before we partake of the bread and the cup. And I think we should examine all three of those areas tonight before we do so. But why are we examining ourselves? We examine ourselves and the next verse tells us we judge ourselves so that God doesn't have to. We judge ourselves and our attitudes and our motives and our actions Because we don't want God to do it. (laughs) Because when God judges us, it could be a matter of life and death. What does he say? He says, because of this, many of you are sick and some have even died. Over this. It's not because... This. It's because of the way they approached the Lord's Supper and their selfishness and their pride, their unwillingness to treat the body in the way that they should treat it, their unwillingness to understand the sacred purpose of the Lord's Supper, their unwillingness to have that sober, sober preparation for the Lord's Supper, and because of that, God has had to judge. Paul says, judge yourselves, examine yourselves, judge yourselves before you eat so that God doesn't have to, because God is using these life and death situations, these sicknesses and these deaths as an example, as a warning to the rest of the church, this is not how you come to the Lord's Supper. He's using it as a way of purifying the church so that the church is not full of people who think they're saved but are not saved, so that they're not condemned like the rest of the world. Continue reading as what it says, right? So that God will judge you so that you are not condemned. But his judgment is there to unify those who are genuinely following Christ to bring us back in a place of obedience, in a place of fellowship, in a place of love, in a place of unity. That's why we examine ourselves. It's not so that we can have permission to eat a wafer and to drink a thimble of juice. It's so that we can participate with one another in the unity of Christ that's why we examine ourselves. If we partake if we partake in the Lord's supper without properly distinguishing the gravity of Christ's sacrifice or if we partake holding on to our own selfish desires and unwilling to repent or if we partake without a right relationship with one or more in the local body we invite upon ourselves the judgment of God in order that he may Create a bride for his son that is pure, spotless, and without blemish. God will judge us if we don't judge ourselves. My question to you this evening as we get ready for the Lord's Supper have you really examined yourself? Have you really judged yourself? Or are you just trying to make yourself feel better? About partaking in the Lord's Supper before the men come, I want to just take a minute of silence. We don't usually have a, a an invitation or anything like that, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna call you down, you know, to the to kneel at the altar. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but it's not typically what we do. But I just want you to take another minute outside of the the one that we had earlier in our worship of confession, and just take a minute. And be real with God. Ask him as David asked to open his heart and to point out the things that need to change and be willing to change them and turn them over to Christ before we together in unity rejoice over what he has done through the Lord's Supper. Take a minute and then I'll close us in word of prayer. Father, as we come to this time of remembrance, to this time where we follow an ordinance that you gave to us the night before you were captured and beaten and tried, shuffled from one obnoxious courtroom to another. We thank you that you were willing to go through all of that for us. As the prophet said, you are like a lamb led to the slaughter, quiet, no defense, Because the reality is you can't defend perfection. You had done nothing wrong. You had done nothing that deserved man's wrath except be the perfect son of God. And Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice that we know we do not deserve. There is not one person in this room who is worthy of your offer to make us your children? And yet, Father, you have done that. You have done that in a way that we often, Lord, can't understand. How you could send your only son and pour on him the sins of the world. And then pour on him your wrath for those sins. I feel like I've barely scratched the surface of what that means, Father. And yet even my frail understanding is in awe of your love and your grace for us. Fathers, we come to you to celebrate this reminder of what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that you would unite us as you intend for us to be united through this ordinance, Lord, that it would not be something that is simply a tradition, that it would not be something that causes Um, dissension and, and struggle and strife. But Lord, that as we come to it, anytime we come to it, we would come with hearts that are searching for you to change us. Hearts that are searching to be knit even closer to you and closer to one another as we remember and as we testify for the work that you have done through your body and blood on the cross as we rejoice in the new covenant that you've given to us because of it. All we can say, Lord, really is thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for changing us. And we look forward to the day when those who have not seen you will see you for the first time. And we'll see you forever. I pray that you be with us as we close this evening in this time of communion. I pray that we be unified. I pray that you would be glorified. In Christ's name we pray, amen.